Nehemiah 6, uh, chapters 4 through 6, rather. Those chapters, Nehemiah 4 to 6, go together in, the, uh, in this book, just like, actually, the strange thing is Ezra's chapters 4 to 6 go together as well, same basic subject. Both cases, we're talking about the enemies of God attacking his people. In Ezra's case, it was the enemies of God coming against them because they're trying to rebuild the temple. And then in, in Nehemiah's case, it is because the enemies of uh, the people of God are trying to, to rebuild the wall. And the enemies don't want this. They don't want that. It's the last thing they want. And we know as we look in this chapter, we can see that these enemies belong to Satan. We know that because Satan will do everything in his power, just like these people are doing, to interfere with the work of God, to hinder it any way they can, to stop it. That's their ultimate goal, to put it to a stop. Anyway, whatever it takes, they're going to do. In John chapter 8, Jesus referred to those who belong to their father, the devil. You all know that familiar passage. Now, Satan is not mentioned in these chapters, not one time, chapters 4 to 6, but some of his children are mentioned, like Sanballat, like Tobiah, like Geshem the Arab, because we can see that their character and their actions reflect the character and actions of their father, the devil. That's pretty obvious. And they have the same goal as the devil. They want to stop the will of God. They want to stop the work of God. And they've learned his strategies as well. They know how to employ his strategies. We saw that starting in chapter 4. In chapter 4, what did they do? They taunted the people of God. They taunted them, and they ridiculed them. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, <clears throat> Sanballat is mocking the people of God, and he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the wall and the city for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish this in a day? This project, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Can they actually do this? In verse 8 of chapter 4, <clears throat> they conspire together, it says. They can, the enemies conspire together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and it caused a disturbance in it. It caused a disturbance. It's interesting, we've been doing James on Wednesday night, and we just finished a section on wisdom, James 3, 13 to 18. And he talks about the wisdom that's what I call wisdom from below, that's uh, of the world, it's natural, it's demonic. And part of that wisdom is that these, when you have such wisdom, humanistic wisdom like that, it reveals itself in disorder, where it means disturbance, and every evil thing. So the wisdom we see in chapter 6 employed by these enemies is a wisdom that's from below, it's a wisdom that's demonic, because they're interested in disturbing the peace of the Jews. In fact, chapter 2, when they... Uh, when uh, Nehemiah shows up, Sanballat comes out of nowhere and says, he's very, he's very concerned that someone is actually seeking the welfare of the Jews. He doesn't like that. Now, as we move into chapter 5, we find the enemy is not outside the walls, but inside. In other words, Jewish brothers or opposing Jewish brothers. And we talked about that last week. It's the wealthy and powerful nobles, the leaders, and they are loan sharks, the people are in trouble financially, they need food, they need grain, there's a famine, and they need to feed their families, and so they borrow money to do this, and these guys are ripping them off, and they're charging, they're exacting interest, and they are wanting their money back, and so the people can't pay, and so they sell some of them into slavery. It gets that bad, and Nehemiah has to confront these greedy nobles and say, hey, let's stop this practice. Now tonight we're in chapter 6, which continues various forms of attacks, attacks by the enemies, and we're going to learn in this chapter that although the work of the Lord goes on, it does go on, nevertheless, the enemies of God will try whatever they can to stop that work. 
work of God's always going to prevail ultimately because God's in charge of it. However, it doesn't mean the enemies aren't coming after the people involved in the work of God. They're going to try to derail that work. Satan is so cunning. He's so subtle. He's got a bag of tricks. He has plenty of tricks up his sleeve. That's why Ephesians 6.11 says uh, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, it says. Schemes of the devil. The methods, that word means the methods that Satan uses or the, the cunning attacks that he uses or the, uh, the, the strategies he uses. Be, be careful of the schemes of the devil. Now, I couldn't verify this, but it occurred to me that <clears throat> the devil would make an excellent chess player because I think he would know what moves to make and I think he would know what to do in, in such a game if he played chess. And he's, he well knows how to attack the people of God. He knows what to do. He knows how to attack us. He, he's got so many schemes. And um, I think, though, we don't want to lose hope because this is the case. We can lose hope and say, well, we're defeated. No, we're not defeated because we're more than conquerors through him that loved us, Romans 8 says. And remember our brothers in the future in Romans 12 who will defeat the accuser of, our, of the brethren by what? By the blood of the lamb, right? And by their own personal testimony because they won't live, love their lives to death. They're going to love Christ more. So we're not without hope here. But what kind of strategies does Satan use to try and stop Nehemiah in his tracks in this chapter? First of all, I think he uses a proposed peace summit, a peace summit of all things, a diplomatic summit. Look at verses, that's in 1 through 4. Look at the first two verses of chapter 6. <clears throat> now, when it was reported to Sanballat, to buy and get to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah says, and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, actually a messenger, we'll find out later, saying, come let us meet together at Shepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. Now at this point, the wall's almost finished. They've been building for a little while. It's almost finished. Great progress has been made. Despite the external struggles against the enemy, despite the internal corruption from their own, some of their own people, the wall is making progress. They're plugging all the holes. No breaches remaining at this point. They just have to hang the, the doors and the gates. They're keeping their nose to the grindstone. Nehemiah has got them organized, and, is, and they're working together. And the enemies hear about the progress of the work. I think they had probably people who were informants, who no, no doubt were telling them what was happening, updating them on the progress of the wall. So far, they haven't been able to stop this building project. They've tried. They've failed. They've succeeded to a, little, a little bit, but they failed ultimately, and so they come up with another plan. How about diplomacy? How about a peace summit? Let's see if that works. We can meet at a neutral location. We'll get Nehemiah to meet at a neutral, neutral location. We'll, just, we'll talk about this thing. We'll figure out maybe a way to bury the hatchet. Maybe we'll extend the olive branch. So they send a messenger to Nehemiah to request that he meets them at this central location. Shepharim in the plain of Ono. Now, the plain of Ono is about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. As you go northwest, it's uh, in the northwest corner of Judah at that time in history. And uh, it's about equal distance from Samaria, north of Judah, uh, between Jerusalem and, and Samaria. You know, San Balas, the governor of Samaria. And so they want to meet at this central location. It's not far from the, the present-day airport of Tel Aviv, probably seven or eight miles away from there. It's kind of a neutral location, but still, <clears throat> it's more than a day's journey for Nehemiah to make. 
and it's bordering the outlying districts of Samaria and Ashdod, still it's hostile territory because he's kind of going to the edge of Samaria. Now, this is not the first time that something like this has been offered or proposed, and it won't be the last. In, in Ezra chapter 4, when the Jews were rebuilding the wall, or rather the temple, the neighboring enemies, when they saw this temple begin to be built, they hated that. They didn't want that to happen. And so they approached the leadership of the Jews at that time, if you remember in, in Ezra chapter 4, and they said, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. We're like you guys. We all serve the same God. They said, all roads lead to Rome, and they came with that approach. <clears throat> same approach is still out there today. Of course, it wasn't true. It was a subtle approach, and they picked up on it. Ezra picks up on it, or not Ezra, but Zerubbabel picks up on it right away. It didn't work out in Ezra 4, but does it mean it's not going to work in the future, this kind of idea? This time, they propose another talk. There's no pretense of religion here. It's kind of a peace summit. We'll talk. Let's look. We've argued, and we've fought, and we've threatened. All right, let's just get together and talk about this thing. It's not going to hurt to talk. However, Nehemiah may have had his own informants because somehow he sniffs, sniffs out the information that, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't a peace summit. They're, they're going to they're try to harm me, it says in verse 2. They're going to try to come after me. They plan to harm him, it says. Literally, they plan to do evil to him, maybe even kill him. Um, you know, if you can eliminate the leader, the work may be over. They've tried other things. They didn't work. So now Nehemiah has a bigger target on his back than he did in chapter 4. They're trying to lure him away from the work to this place, lonely place, over a day's journey away, and, and maybe do him enough harm to end his plans or maybe even kill him. This is a trap. It is a subtle trap. This is the kind of trap Satan likes to set. Of course, they don't know that he knows that they're trying to kill him. I, lo I love Nehemiah's response in verse 3 to this proposed summit. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them. I replied, sent messengers back. <clears throat> I said, hey, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work of God, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, what he says is absolutely the truth. He's not making an excuse here for not coming. This is the truth. Now, of course, he's not going because he wants to avoid death or harm. He knows that. I mean, that's just common sense. But there's also the wall to consider. He says, I'm busy doing the work of the Lord. I'm busy. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my time to do this work. I don't have time to stop and travel some days back and forth. Take the time to talk to people who, knows, who he knows are bent on stopping the work of God. Why am I going to do this? It's a waste of time. Now, I can see other leaders uh, in a similar situation falling into this trap. Let's say these people don't know their life is on the line. I can see, apply that to the American church today. I can see an invitation extended. And you hear this every once in a while for pastors to attend a conference. Let's get all the religious leaders together. I just, over Easter, I just thought of this. Kanye West had a, uh, he was celebrated Easter. I don't know if you know this or not. Over in California, he called it, he called it uh, Jesus. I think they called it Jesus, the celebration. And they, they were saying that, you know, he loves Jesus and all this supposedly. And they had all these people show up like uh, Muslims and all kinds of people, and they celebrated together. Well, I can see this happening. This has happened many times across the country and across the world. You can see this. You've heard about this many times. And, uh, you know, you can say all these spiritual leaders of all faiths show up, Muslims and Catholics and Protestants and, and, and liberals and everybody, 
They go there, and what happens? They compromise, right? Let's talk about things. Let's have a dialogue. That's another thing that's been happening. Dialogues between Muslims and Christians and so on. Let's find common ground, and I can see the work of God going completely down the drain as a result. And spiritual harm happening in the end. Now, not a lot of whole people, a lot, not a lot of people would have had the determination that Nehemiah has to carry out God's will at the risk of losing popularity. And that's always a problem. Well, I don't want to be, in, and then people embarrass you. Hey, try to embarrass you into submitting to what they want. Isn't it, aren't you guys so, or why are you guys so intolerant all the time? That's always happening. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. Is that pride? Is it pride, is it pride, proud of him to say this, that I'm doing a great work? No, because he is doing a great work, it's an important work. And why do we say that? Because <clears throat> this is the work of God. This is God's work. God's work is always important. <clears throat> why should he come down from the wall? Because he's doing this great work. It's, he's not interested in lesser pursuits. Why should he, his attention be diverted from what is important to what is insignificant? Why should he do that? Now, that's his attitude. That's his perspective. Not every professing believer has a, places a premium on the work of God. Some think that the work of God is of lesser importance than what they're doing. They think this. I know they think this. Their plans are, great, are of greater importance than God's plans, but God's work, that's lesser. That's their attitude. They can't be bothered with that. They, to, to them, church attendance is secondary. It's a secondary matter. To them, direct involvement in the service of God is a secondary matter. Because they have got, they've got their own thing going on. They won't come up to the work of God. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going to come down from the work of God. I'm not going to do that. What's your perspective on the work of God? Think about this for a minute. What is your perspective on the work of God through the local church? And God's working through the local church these days. Is it important to you? Now, I'm not telling you to leave your family and, <clears throat> and your responsibilities to your family and give all that up to serve in the church 24 hours a day. The Lord's work is done in your family as well. It's done in your personal life. It's done in the church. It's done in the world. I'm just asking what your perspective is on these things. What is your perspective on the work of God? Do you think this is important? This is really important. Or ho-hum, I can leave it, take it or leave it. I don't really care. And actions speak louder than words when it comes to that. You know, when Jesus was being crucified, his enemies cried out to him on the cross, they said to him, save yourself and do what? Come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. In Mark's gospel, Mark 15, they say it a second time. They said, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Why don't you come down from that cross? Now think about this for a minute. What would have happened? You ever wonder what would have happened if Christ had come down from the cross? What about if some through some miracle... He, he, got, he got himself out of this, everything, you know, and, and, he, and he came down from the cross. Now, this is pure speculation. It would have never happened. But everything had led to that moment. It had led to that moment. And, and now he comes down. Well, it's all over with at that point. There's no salvation. We have nothing at that point. But he endured the Father's wrath against sinners for, us, for our sakes. It was of the utmost importance to him that he do the work of God, the work on the cross. Now, I think one element we're missing today is a recognition of the importance of the Lord's work. We don't, we don't see it. We don't perceive it that way. We just don't. If it's a, is it a big deal or not what we're doing here? Is it a big deal? If it is, let's, let's, let's act like it is. Let's treat it like it is. Let's view it like Christ did. Look at verse 4. 
They sent messages to me four times in this manner. Come down from the wall. Come down from the wall. Come down from the wall. Can you come down from the wall and have a meeting with us? We just want to talk. Four times they sent messages, and I answered them in the same way. You see the message they send to them? You know, they <clears throat> come across very nice. They're going to have a summit, you know. You're hereby cordially invited to the peace summit at Ono, you know. A luncheon will be provided. There's going to be valet parking for all attendees. It was that kind of a, an attitude. Four times. That is persistence. The enemies are desperate to stop the work on the wall. Their desperation drives them to persistence. And they, they repeat this invitation probably four times to shame Nehemiah into coming, to embarrass him into coming. I mean, they're all government officials. Sanballat is, Tobiah is, Nehemiah is. They're all diplomats. Don't governors like Nehemiah understand his, his uh, responsibility to have diplomatic meetings? But Nehemiah refuses to budge. He says, nope, I'm doing a great work. I will not come down. After repeat, answering this for four times, I think they finally got the message. Okay, I don't think this guy's coming. <laughs> How persistent are they? They're just constantly persistent. How persistent should we be? Is at least as much as the enemy and more so. We should pers persevere in the work of God. That's the first strategy. A proposed peace summit didn't work. So they come up with a second strategy, and that would be a fabricated rumor. A fabricated rumor in verses 5 to 9. Look at verse 5. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You also have appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these, to these reports. So come now. Let us take counsel together. Here's another strategy of Satan. The same guy, the same poor guy that's already delivered the message four times is asked to go a fifth time. Imagine he's tired by now, making all these trips, with another message. This time the servant of Sanballat gives an open letter to Nehemiah. Now usually letters back then were sealed with, a, with a, an official seal from a, a government official, and they would roll up the letter and they would tie it with a string. It was intended for the person it was sent to, only for that person. But this is an open letter. It's not tied. It's not private. It's kind of like today. <clears throat> if you got a letter, a stamped envelope from the USPS system, and it was kind of, the glue was kind of worn out, and the flap was open, anybody in the USPS could read the letter, and anybody along the way could read the letter. <clears throat> Sand Ballot did this on purpose. Obviously wanting people to know, wanting the public to know. Even the servant could have read it. Hey, what does this say? It's an open letter. The message is this. Sam Ballot says, hey, are you aware of the fact, Nehemiah, the nations, probably the nations surrounding Judah, are you aware of the fact that they're hearing that you guys are staging a rebellion? Do you know about this? It's all out there. The new, everybody knows about it. And that's confirmed by Gashmu. Gashmu probably another name for Geshem, the Arab. Geshem can confirm this is the truth. <clears throat> you know, I can hear it now. They say, we know why you're building the wall. You're rebelling against the king. Nehemiah wants to be a king himself. He's going to have prophets proclaim that he's the king. And they're going to announce it to everybody. And, and when the king of Persia hears, it's going to be bad news. And we're going to make sure he hears. The last thing 
Can you imagine the last thing King Artaxerxes wanted to hear is that his former cupbearer, the man he trusted with his life, is now trying to stage a coup. Can you imagine that Persian kings did not look kindly on people who participated in rebellions against the kingdom? Basically, Sanballat is charging Nehemiah with high treason against the king. This is a serious accusation, very serious. It's not the first time he's done this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. A lot of repetition in these chapters. Chapter 2, verse 19. Talking to Nehemiah when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it. When they heard that the wall was going to be built, they mocked us and despised us, and they said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The funny thing is, this is the very king, Artaxerxes, who authorized the building of the wall. And now they're saying, by building the wall, you're rebelling against the king. <laughs> I don't think so. It is an ingenious plot they came up with to make it sound like this rumor was going everywhere and everybody knew about it. And now what's Nehemiah going to do? And, uh, you know, this coup is going to take place. I wonder how long it took him to think it up. Can you see those guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem in a smoke-filled room? What can we do to come up with a plan here? A rumor, let's spread a rumor out there to try to get Nehemiah. This is a pretty good plan they have. The only problem is it has no basis in fact. It's purely manufactured. Just to put it down in the rumor mill, there's another name for this fabricated rumor. It's called a lie. It's a flat-out lie. This is another way we know that Satan is involved in this situation. Jesus said in John 8:44, the devil does not stand in the truth because there is how much truth in him? There is no truth in him. None. Zero. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In the very next verse, Jesus says, I tell the truth, and no one believes me. Satan says lies, and everybody believes him. He's been lying ever since the Garden of Eden. That's what he does. He lies. He deceives. This whole chapter is about lies and deceit from Satan, from his people. They're lying. The enemies of Jesus use the same strategy against him. They did in, in uh, Matthew, turn to Matthew 28. They did it in Matthew 28, eight, after the resurrection of Jesus. The elders of the Jews started a rumor. So no one would believe this resurrection. Go to Matthew 28, verse 11. It says there, now while they were on their way after the resurrection, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Hey, you hear about this resurrection? And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, you are to say, here's what we want you to say. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Tell everybody this. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, and they did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and to this day. Spread far and wide, that rumor did, and there's no telling about how many people believed it. Another lie of the devil. Now, this alleged rumor against Nehemiah is designed to pressure him. It's designed to get him to worry and dis distract him from the work of God. You can understand how this, in this information could have influenced him negatively, right? He could start thinking if he believed this lie, if he believed this rumor, it could drive him from the work. I mean, he could think, what if King Artaxerxes, my king, the king I serve, thinks this rumor is true? What if he thinks this is true? You know, what if he thinks that his... Former trusted employee is now rebelling against him, trying to become a king in his own right. 
What if he actually believes that we're staging a rebellion? This could really throw him off completely. The letter the servant is reading concludes with these words, Come now, let us counsel together. In other words, Sanballat and company say, Look, Nehemiah, we can straighten this out. Look, there's rumors out there. Yes, it's, it's a bad situation. We can straighten this out. If you'll just comply with our wishes, we can get you out of this mess. We can straighten out all these things. We can clear your name. <clears throat> How do you think Nehemiah will respond to this? He sends back the reply to Sanballat, verse 8. Then I sent a message back to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. He simply denies the story. He said, look, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. I know this isn't true. I know good and well it's not true. It's a figment of your imagination. It's a plan hatched in the minds of evil men. We talk about the minds of evil men. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 describes the mind opposed to God. What kind of a mind would come up with this? It's a mind opposed to God. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 says this. Those people without God, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they are callous, it goes on to say. Callous people. That's the kind of heart and mind that comes up with vicious lies and rumors that are spread about believers. Nehemiah realizes what the enemies are trying to do. Verse 9, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Trying to frighten the people trying to scare them away from the work uh, by spreading stories that aren't true. This idea of fright, frightening the people, is seen about four times in this passage, not only in verse 9. You'll see it again in verse 13. You'll see it again in verse 14. You'll see it again in verse 19, trying to frighten the people. They're using psychological warfare, scare tactics. Let's try to scare these people out of it. That can be very effective. It can be a very effective uh, the, the Assyrians were masters of that craft, but we must remember the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and self-control. When you really comprehend the truth that the Lord is on your side, you really get a hold of that truth and understand it, fear begins to dissipate. According to verse 9, and, it, and Nehemiah knew that's what they were trying to do. According to verse 9, the enemy thought that by frightening them, the Jews would become discouraged. Well, the, the literal rendering of that verse is there, in, in verse 9, it says they'll become discouraged, is this. They're going to drop their hands. They're going to weaken their hands when, they, when they're frightened because of what this rumor, they're going to drop their hands. They're gonna, you're weakening their hands so that the work cannot be done. That's the goal, weaken their hands. Weaken their hands, cause them to lose their, their heart for the job, dampen their spirits, cause them to be discouraged so much that they quit and throw in the towel. That is still the goal of the enemy to this day. Same thing, by the way, his plans, his strategies really, although there's many strategies, they're basically foundationally the same throughout the centuries. That's still his goal. If he and his followers can weaken our resolve to serve God, then God's, they've won a great battle. They've won a great battle. Some people have already caved in to this tactic. That's why we need to encourage our brothers and sisters to persevere at, in the work, to persevere in the faith. We need to do that. Again, this strategy is nothing new. It's employed in Ezra chapters 4 to 6, when they're rebuilding the temple. Ezra 4, 4 says, Then the people of the land, that is the enemies of the Jews, they literally weaken the hands of the people of Judah and frighten them from the building. Same thing, same strategy, nothing's changed. Now, how do you fight this, 
this discouragement that comes our way through being frightened or whatever? How do you fight this? What do you do when you're brought low in spirit? You do what Nehemiah did. What did he do? He prayed. He always prays. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 18, 1, that at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart? How do you not lose heart? You pray at all times. How many times do we need to pray so we won't lose heart? At all times, right? It's an ongoing thing. People say, well, I've tried prayer. didn't work. Well, are you still praying? It's all the time, right? Nehemiah does this. You should know by now that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Everybody should know this by now. However, we also know what? He prays very brief prayers. <laughs> He's not going to come up with a long-winded prayer. He's very brief, but his prayers are very effective. Doesn't James 5 say the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much? The Lord must have answered his prayer here because he perseveres. Look at the, look at the prayer at the end of verse 9. But now, God, strengthen my hands. The words, oh God, in italics aren't even really in the text. He has such a close God, a walk with God, he doesn't need to say, oh God, even. He says, strengthen my hands, because he's walking with God all the time, talking to him like that, uh, because he's got this intimate relationship with God. Prayed for strength. What more appropriate prayer to pray when you're weak than for God's strength, right? God, strengthen me. Strengthen my hands. Make me strong to do your work. You ever feel this way? Weak? That's why we're dependent upon God. We're weak, he's strong. He gives us strength. Nehemiah sought to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He didn't depend on his own resources. He looked to God. That's what we need to do in times of discouragement. Are you discouraged tonight? Look to God, like Nehemiah did, and ask him for strength to move ahead to do his business. And so they tried this fabricated rumor, but Nehemiah ends by praying, Lord, strengthen me. These guys are coming at us. We need your strength. A third Strategy, and the last one we'll look at tonight is a wolf in sheep's clothing in verses 10 to 14. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Verse 10, it says, When I entered, Nehemiah says, When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. Now, this account does not include all the details of how this developed, this whole story developed. And it doesn't have to. Old Testament does that a lot. It doesn't tell us all the details. But apparently a man named Shemaiah invited Nehemiah to his house. The, the, the name Shemaiah means Yahweh hears, the Lord hears. That's a good God-honoring name. Who could argue with that name? Hey, what are we going to name this baby? How about Shemaiah? Yahweh hears. That's a good name. This, just, this must be a man of God to have such a name as this. In fact, we're going to find out later he's a prophet. Some think he was a priest, but we can't prove that. That's just a couple of verses that are kind of iffy as to whether he was a priest or not. Nehemiah accepts his invitation. The text states that Shemaiah was confined at home. For some reason, some translations say he was shut up at home. Later on, we're going to wish he would have shut up. But anyway, he's detained at his house. We don't know why. There's speculation as to why. There's no sense in going into all that. He's at home. It says he's at home, but I think I know why. Later on, we'll talk about that. But he's got a warning for Nehemiah. He says, Nehemiah, I called you over here to tell you this. We need to have a meeting. Here, here we go again with another meeting, okay? Let us meet together in the house of God, the temple. Go within the temple. We'll close the doors of the temple. Why the temple? Why close the doors? Why the secrecy? 
It's because Shemaiah says they're coming to kill you. The enemy's coming to kill you. And probably, they're, and they're going to come at night, probably meaning they're going to come tonight to kill you, this very night. The temple's a great place to hide. Who's going to come in there? Nehemiah answers with two questions after he thinks about this. Should a man like me flee? Now, Nehemiah is not a coward. He doesn't have the spirit of fear, right? We talked about that earlier. He knows God, and he's the governor of Judah. And if he shows a cowardly side, what will the people think about that that, that are his followers? You know, there's a time to hide. There is a time to hide. You know, when you, have, when you th- talk about this, you think of Corey Ten Boom, Ten Boom, who hid the Jews in Germany in World War II. Hi, it hid them. I, I understand that. You have uh, the underground church in China, different places. I understand that. But Nehemiah, there's a time to hide, but there's a time not to hide. Nehemiah knows this is not the time to hide and not the person to hide at this moment here in history. A second question. He says, could such a one as I go into the temple to save his life? He's asking if he can find sanctuary in the sanctuary. Can I find sanctuary there? Should I find sanctuary there? And the answer is no, he cannot. The reason is he's not a priest. He's a layperson. He can't just waltz into the temple. That's, against, that's transgression of the law. He can't do that. Temple Priests had that opportunity, not Nehemiah. You remember King Uzziah? I think in, in 2 Chronicles 26, he tried to go into the temple. He got zapped, right? He got leprosy. All over, broke out all over him. Nehemiah thinks about this. He calculates the, fa- the facts very quickly and makes the wise decision to not enter the temple. He says, I'll not go in. Now, ver- verse 12. It's very interesting to me. A very instructive verse. I think it's very helpful for all of us. Simple verse. But verse 12 says this. Nehemiah says, Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. God didn't send Shemaiah. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Boy, Nehemiah is getting it quickly, isn't he? He's realizing, wait a minute. After sizing up the situation here, I realize here's another trick they're playing on me. These guys have been hired by the enemy. Uh, and th- this is very helpful to us because here's why. He didn't know this at first. He, he accepts the invitation to go to this prophet's house, Shemaiah, thinking this is a prophet, right? Prophet of God. He, he had to come to perceive this information. Then I perceived. After a time, he gradually recognizes him, what's happened. It doesn't take him long, but it has to dawn on him a little bit. After he talks with this guy, hey, wait a minute. This is all wrong. This guy's not the real deal. He's a false prophet. Probably the guy was pretending to be confined at home. It's probably just a cover to get Nehemiah to come visit him. Still, we don't know all the details here. What we do know is this. Shemaiah was actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. Pretending to be somebody, pretending to be a, a true prophet, actually a false prophet. The name given him at birth. Probably the parents' desire to have him glorify God. We want our son to glorify the Lord. We're going to give him the name Yahweh Hears. But somewhere along the line, he compromises in his life. And Nehemiah discerns, hey, this guy is a prophet for hire. His employers, he's, he's a temp. His employers for this temporary assignment are none other than Sanballat and Tobiah. He figures this out. And why is he hired? Nehemiah gives three reasons. Look at verse 13. He says he was hired for this reason that, number one, I might become frightened and act accordingly. He wants me to be afraid and act with fear. That's what the enemy is trying to do. Again, frighten him. You see this again and again. So that he might act the role of a coward. 
and show his lack of faith in the Lord. He wants me to be frightened. Secondly, he wants me to sin, it says. If I do this thing that he's asked to do, to go in the temple, I will sin against God. Now, had, had Nehemiah done what the false prophet have said, he would have sinned against the Lord. He would have dishonored the Lord. He would have transgressed the law by entering the sacred temple. And then he says, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Sanballat could have ammunition now against Nehemiah. Look what he did, people. This is your great leader here. He fell into a cowardly stance here, and he did the wrong thing, and now we can discredit this guy. They would have evidence to cast scorn on him. The uh, theological word book of the Old Testament says that word reproach is used in the sense of defame. To impute blame or guilt on someone in order to harm his character. They want to defame me so they can harm my character. Nehemiah's reputation is on the line here. To show his lack of trust in God at this moment in history is going to undermine his authority with the people, his confidence with the people. This is what Satan wants to do to us, ruin our reputation. That's the goal. Ruin the reputation of the people. Make a mockery of your testimony for Christ. In this case, he uses a false prophet to try to deceive Nehemiah and try to discredit Nehemiah. What do you think Nehemiah does in response? He prays, right? <laughs> He's always praying. Verse 14, he says, Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. Now you have a clearer picture. In verse 14 of what's going on, this is not a vindictive prayer for selfish reasons. There's a far bigger picture going on here. Nehemiah is trying to build the wall of Jerusalem. The wall is being built to protect the city so the Lord can have a continuing work in Jerusalem. That's why he wants to continue his work. This is, when they finish the wall, the work of God is not over. This is just the beginning. God wants to continue working with the people of Israel. But at this point, the beginning, so much is on the line. If Satan can stop him here, he's got a great victory. Now, in this prayer, Nehemiah reveals something else. It's not just one prophet who's a problem at this time. It's not just Shemaiah. There are other false prophets to contend with, like Noadiah the prophetess. Now, we don't know anything about her. But we know this. She's a problem. She's a false prophetess. And... He says the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten him. This is a bad situation here. Now, they've come back to the land here. And, and now we're having false prophets arise. Unbelievable. They're, God starting, has been starting a new work here for some years now. And now you have these false prophets. Nehemiah, Nehemiah rather, is in a situation now where <clears throat> he doesn't know who to trust. As far as prophets are concerned, can I trust this person? Can I trust this person? This has always been a major strategy of the devil. False prophets, false teachers, spreading lies. It's everywhere today in this world. Everywhere in this world. Can, is it everywhere in this world that there's false lies and false prophets being spread? spread teaching everywhere, everywhere right? <laughs> All over the place. You can see, if I'm not mistaken, Joyce Meyer's books in places in Asia, right? And all these books are in these places around the world. It's everywhere. Always a strategy of the devil. Paul warned of the deceit of false teachers, false prophets. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Paul says, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Well, we're going to find out in the end who these people are, but for right now they're deceiving people. 
the lesson, be careful who you listen to. Make sure that what people are saying from the Word of God is actually from the Word of God, right? Pray for discernment. False prophets, false teachers are everywhere lying in wait to deceive you. That's how it is. Now, we're going to come back to this chapter another Sunday, but for now, we're not going to be here next week. For now, remember this. Satan will use whatever it takes to get at you. Whatever it takes, he's going to use to get at you. You mean the pastor? Yeah, but I mean everybody else too. He's going to try to get his foothold in your life. He's a master of deceit. He knows all the tricks. He's, his goal is to ensnare you. Beware of the enemy of your soul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant of schemes. Some people are ignorant of his schemes. Don't be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Arm yourselves with the truth. And as Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him firm in the faith. Let's ask the Lord for strength. Let's close in prayer and ask the Lord for strength as we close to fight in this battle, this battle of lies from Satan. Father, we are grateful for your word that gives us instruction to give us the knowledge to understand these things are happening, Lord, that this deception is everywhere. We pray you'll make us people of discernment, help us to understand the attacks of our, of our enemy, help us to realize he's real, he likes to hide himself, he doesn't like to appear uh, to, out in a blatant way usually, but helps us to understand the attacks he, he uh, directs against us. The subtle attacks help us not to be unaware of these things. We pray we would stand in the Lord and the power of his might against them. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.